In Parashas Nasoi, one after the other, we learn the laws of the Soita, the woman who is accused of infidelity, and a Nazar, a person who dedicates his life or her life to Hashem in a very unique way. And the commentaries tell us that the reason they go next to each other is because if a person sees the disgrace of a Soita, it should be a reminder to themselves to rein themselves in and not get carried away with wine, so the Nazar doesn't drink wine. It's also one of the reasons that's given that the two tractates in the Gemara go one after the other. Now we're going to examine the Rambam's view, where the Rambam does not seem to think that the two Gemaras go together, which will open up a whole investigation of how exactly a Soto works, and we'll come to a very interesting perspective, that there are actually two different approaches to the Soto depending on circumstances. A very interesting insight. So the Chazal tell us, why do we juxtapose Soita and Nazir? To teach you that any person who sees the disgrace of the Soita should avoid wine. And not only is this in the Torah, but it's in Torah as well. So straight after the tractate of Nazir, you go to Soita. In fact, we actually see this in the discussion in the beginning of Gemara Soita, where it says, The Gemara asks exactly that question. The Tana has just been speaking about the Nazir. What prompted him now to speak about the Soita? And he says exactly this. A person who sees, who witnesses the Soita should respond as a Nazir. Now we accept in our version that Soita follows Nazir. But the Rambam says that Soita actually follows the tractate of Gitin about divorce. And in his view, the Nazir by Lifnei Gitin. So it would go Nazir, then Gitin, and then Soita. And he explains why. The Rambam says because Soita is a continuation of the theme of divorce. If we discover that a woman has been unfaithful, then we encourage the couple to divorce. So it's a divorce issue, and therefore that's the juxtaposition. Are you going to say, but what will the Rambam do with the Gemara that said very clearly you come from Nazir to Soita? It's an interesting uh, little text over here. Le uh, Midrash, it would appear to say, So the Meiri gives an explanation that why would the Gemara say that from Soita, you, you, from Nazir, you go to Soita? It actually means from Nazir, you go to the entire subject, which includes Gerashin and Soita, includes divorce and Soita, because they're all really one theme. So now we have to understand that Sarkh Lahavin. Remember, we began this conversation in the parasha, and we said in the parasha, we know, and nobody can debate this, that the two go hand in hand. You go Nazir Soita, right? or Soita Nazir, actually. First you learn about the Soita, then the Nazir. So they're Bismichas, they're literally right next to each other. So how would the Rambam explain if in the Torah, we go from the one to the other directly, Soita to Nazir, why then would the Rambam believe that in Gomorrah we would suddenly place another Masechta in between? What would be the logic to do it differently to the Torah? We also have to understand, 
Actually, there's a bigger question at play over here. What motivates the different views? So Rashi's view, which is the view we know best, is that straight after Nazir, you go to Soita. The Rambam's view, which might have come as a surprise to many of us, is that Soita comes after Gitin, which comes after Nazir. So we need to understand what's behind the scenes of these two arguments. Well, these two opinions, why would we think that the correlation should be in one way or the other? So some people try and say, well, actually, the Rambam follows the opinion of the Yerushalmi. And if you have a look in the Yerushalmi, it does seem to go aligned with the Rambam. The problem we're going to have with this is that usually we follow the Bavli. But anyhow, let's first see. Yes, Meforshim. It's a fascinating explanation where the Yerushalmi says that actually the entire concept of Soita hinges on the principle of divorce. Without the principles of divorce and the specific laws around divorce, we would never get to the laws of Soita. So that's why the Yerushalmi explains that it should first go get in, you should learn the laws of divorce, from which you will discover the laws of a Soita. So how does Yerushalmi work this? Isab Yerushalmi. Shemachlaikas Rabbi Lezav Rabbi Yeshua Shom. Im kinal ishtu choiva oirushus. Tluim machlaikas beishamai uveisilo bemishna soif gitin. So the beginning of Masechta Soita has this famous argument, Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yeshua, if the Torah encourages or discourages the concept of a Soita. In other words, in order for a Soita to happen, the husband has to warn his wife, I don't want you to be alone with so-and-so. Is that something we encourage or discourage? So the Yerushalmi says that the nature of that argument depends on how we understand a different argument from the preceding Masechta, Gitin, according to the Yerushalmi, it's the preceding Masechta, the debate between Beis Hillel and Beis Shammai. What's the debate? What are the grounds on which you're allowed to divorce? So it says, that so Beis Shammai says a person may not divorce his wife unless he suspects infidelity, or unless it is infidelity. And Beis Hillel says that a man may divorce his wife even if she burns the food. So the Yerushalmi says this is linked directly to Soita, because look, Beis Shammai says that the grounds for divorce are infidelity. So, Shimotza Bodvorim Keurin, or as the Bavli says, Mechuorim Beloy Eidim. So now let's take Beis Shammai's opinion. Beis Shammai says if he knows that she is unfaithful, he has to divorce her. What if he suspects and he has no evidence? He has no witnesses, which is what's going to be the grounds for Soita. So Beis Shammai would say in the Yerushalmi's view, the Beis Shammai won't allow him to divorce his wife because he hasn't got proof of infidelity. He's not allowed to remain married to her because he sees that she's behaving in a way that is inappropriate. Therefore, the Yerushalmi's view of Beishamei would be Now he would be required to do something that would clarify the position. What can he do? Tell her, don't ever go with that person. If he catches her, take her to the base in Yerushalayim. They'll administer the soita water, and that will clarify either his suspicions are unfounded or there's something to be concerned about. Whereas, according to Beis Hillel, he doesn't even need such a heavy reason to divorce his wife. The fact that she doesn't cook well is enough of a reason. So, according to Beis Hillel, it would be a choice whether or not 
to do the Soita process. According to Beis Shammai, it would be a requirement to do the, the Soita process. So, Toysus actually quotes this Yerushalmi there in the beginning of the Talmud Bavli. Vehikshane asked the following question. They ask exactly the question we're dealing with. If what the Yerushalmi proposes is true, that the entire basis for Sota, at least in Baishamai's view, is dependent on the laws of divorce, then why doesn't Sota follow Gitin? And therefore those commentaries like the Me'iri that we just looked at, they say, in fact, Tosus makes a really good point. And therefore in the Yerushalmi, it does go first Gitin and then Soita. And that's the Rambam's view too. Okay, so we think perhaps we've got an answer for the Rambam. We want to know why would the Rambam depart from the accepted version that it goes Nazir and then Sota and instead say Gitin and then Sota. Well, he has a reason. He sides with the Yerushalmi who says that the underpinning of the concept of Sota depends on the laws of Gerishin. Except Avol, Kosha Letaretzke. Well, first of all, the big issue is the Talmud Bavri does not associate the laws of Soita with the halachas of Gitin. How do we know that? Because <clears throat> we know that the Talmud Bavri brings exactly this argument, whether or not you are required or permitted to... Um, to do the kinoi process, to accuse a wife of infidelity and therefore make her a soita. It's interesting though, unlike the Yushami who says, Rabbi Eliezer, Rabbi Yeshua, in our Gemara Talmud Bavli, it says it's a debate between Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Shmuel. And Rabbi Akiva is the one who says, you have to divorce now, you will remember from the end of Gitin that Rabbi Akiva has the most permissive, the most liberal view on when you can divorce. He says even if a person finds somebody who he prefers, that would be grounds, it's not encouraged, but that would be an acceptable reason for divorce. Now, the whole concept of the Yerushalmi was built on saying that it's based Shammai's strict view that you may not divorce unless there is an outright infidelity, that that's the view who says, that you have to, if you suspect infidelity, take your wife through the Sota process. Here we're seeing that the Talmud Bavli says it's Rabbi Akiva, the most liberal-minded about grounds for divorce, who's the one who says you have to take your wife as a Sota. That doesn't work. So it's pretty clear that in the Talmud Bavli, there's no logical reason to say that Soita is the follow-on from Gitin. And therefore you have to say that in the Talmud Bavli, the logical sequence is first Nazir and then Soita, very much like in the Psukim. How could we suggest that the Rambam would take the view of the Talmud Yerushalmi against the Talmud Bavli? We know that the convention is when there's a debate between Talmud Bavli and Yerushalmi, we follow the Bavli Lehalocha. So our suggestion over here to say that the Rambam sides with the Yerushalmi seems flawed. Besides which, you say, Mizay. If, let's argue, just for the sake of it, that the Rambam does believe, like the Yerushalmi, that the only grounds for Sota would be because by rights you should divorce an unfaithful wife, 
How could the Rambam then say that if a person suspects his wife, he is required, like Rabbi Akiva says, to take her through the Sota process, whereas according to the Yerushalmi, that would go in Beis Shammai's opinion. In other words, firstly, there's a big question. How could we reconcile the Rambam's view of supporting the Yerushalmi with the general principle that we always favor the Bavli? And more technically, the Rambam's own nature of how he paskans halocha in favor of Rabbi Akiva flies in the face of the Yerushalmi. You're saying that it's actually Beishamai who's the one who proposes that you have no choice, but you have to, you know, you have to uh, take her through the Sota process. So in order to understand this all, let's have a look at the fact that the Rambam, Dafka ruled like Rabbi Akiva. So Rabbi Akiva, who on the one hand says that divorce could be even if he finds another woman, and who on the other hand says that if a person suspects his wife, he is required by halacha to take her through the Sota process. Let's understand this. The Rambam, as we see, states clearly that it is a requirement for a person to take his wife through the Sota process if the need arises. So it's interesting because if you have a look at the Mishnah, the first opening Mishnah of Sota, it says, which is almost like a passive statement. Should somebody want to accuse his wife, this is the procedure from which the Gemara derives that the Mishnah is of the view that you should not encourage it, and it's only if a person insists, then we provide a procedure for them. But, but actually, it's actually an inappropriate behavior. So now we really are surprised at the opinion of the Rambam. We have a Mishnah without opinions, so that means it's a Stam Mishnah, meaning to say that it's agreed upon. That Mishnah says, that the position a Jewish husband should take is that you are not allowed to accuse your wife of infidelity unless you have absolute evidence. Then you have a Brysa. A Brysa always has less authority than a Mishnah, and especially we have a Brysa with a debate, Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Shmuel, and there Rabbi Akiva says, no, it's a requirement to take the wife through the Sota process. How do we allow, how does the Rambam allow a single view in a debate in a Brysa to override a consolidated view in a Mishnah? Doesn't make sense. So, the Tosus Yomtev wants to suggest, look, Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Yishmoel might argue about whether it is permitted or required, but they both agree that it is not forbidden. So in other words, Rabbi Akiva has support of Rabbi Yishmoel, and we have a rule that if Rabbi Akiva debates with a single opinion, we follow Rabbi Akiva. So you've got Rabbi Akiva plus Rabbi Shmuel on his side in the Brisa. You have a single opinion that admittedly nobody else debates, but it's a single view presented in the Mishnah. So the Tosus Yomtev wants to say that's why the Rambam would say you go according to Rabbi Akiva because that is the, the normal way in which we decide halacha. So the only thing is that that explanation relies on the fact that if you have a Stam Mishnah, again, there's no name attached to the opinion in the Mishnah. So this will only work if you go with a view that says if there's no name attached to the Mishnah, that doesn't automatically mean that the Halacha follows that Mishnah. 
But there is another view which says you always follow the halachic presentation of a Mishnah that does not have a, a dissenting voice. So if you have one voice in the Mishnah, that's the halacha. If there happens to be a brisa that contradicts it, well, some people will say consider the brisa, but many people will say don't consider the brisa. For all of those people who say don't consider the brisa, the answer of the Tosis Yomta doesn't work. Therefore, we're going to see something fascinating about how the Rambam reads the entire concept of Soita. So the Rambam is not taking the view as we've presented it so far, which is that there are three views. There's the anonymous author of the Mishnah, Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Shmuel. And they say, Asur, Rishus, Oichoiva, that it's either forbidden to accuse your wife, or it is permitted, like Rabbi Shmuel, or it is required, like Rabbi Akiva. Why wouldn't the Rambam say it's a three-way argument? Because the Rambam would actually say that Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Shmuel and the Brisa actually don't debate against the author of the Mishnah. You see, our whole position over here was that the author of the Mishnah says, definitely do not, under any circumstances, go through this accusatory process. And then Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Shmuel will say whether you can or should. But it's quite possible that Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Shmuel actually are not arguing against this Mishnah at all. And we'll prove it from the layout of the Gemara. Because if you have a Brisa that does have a bone of contention with the Mishnah, it should follow immediately afterwards. Look what happens. Logic would have said that straight after the Gemara says, you see, the author of our Mishnah believes that you're not allowed to go through the Kinoi process accusing a wife. Then we should have said, ah, but Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Shmuel believe that it is either permissible or required. Like we see the Gemara does right there in that same area where the Gemara says there's a debate between Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Yoshua if you need two witnesses at the time that the husband warns his wife or not. And straight away we say, oh, well, that's definitely not like Rabbi Yosef, Rabbi Huda, because he says one witness is sufficient, or even the person himself. The truth is that even when the Gemara got to the point of telling us the debate between Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Shmuel, which is later, it didn't tie it back to the opinion in the Mishnah that says, So therefore, you assume that Rabbi Yishmuel and Rabbi Akiva are not only arguing against each other, but also against the author of the Mishnah. Actually, there's no evidence for that. The only reason the Gemara even got into the discussion between Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Shmuel is because there's a, a difference of opinion what the Pasuk means when it says, that the husband was filled with a spirit of jealousy. Is that a positive thing? Is it a bad thing? So it's a debate in the Gemara. And in order to facilitate that debate, they had to show you Rabbi Shmuel and Rabbi Kiva's opinions. Because if you're going to say that it is Ruach Tuma, that it's an, an inappropriate attitude and an overzealousness, then how could Rabbi Akiva have ever suggested it's required to do it? So it's only in that context that we got into the debate of Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Shmuel. So now the Rambam is, well, the way we're understanding the Rambam is that Rabbi Shmuel and Rabbi Akiva's debate is independent of the, of the opinion in the Mishnah, which means... And this is where the incredible insight comes in. It means that there are actually two different possibilities of how a soita works. 
אלא בייז נידונים שונים מהם במשנה ובברייסה, לפי שישנם שני אופניים בקינוי. במשנה וברייסה אנחנו מדברים על שני אופניים, כי יש שני אופניים שונים שהאופניים יכולים להתאים לזה. אלף, כינוי לאיש הבלתי צנוע שהוא אקדומה לסתירה. what's going on. So that's the most common version. That's what we always think about, actually, when we think about a soita, a man who knows that his wife is not behaving well, and he wants to clarify what's really going on. Now there's another possibility that the Rambam actually introduces to us, which we don't normally think about, and that is where a man is zealous in the chastity of his wife, even without any suspicions. That's Kinev and Egele Isha Kishera. That there's this concept of like this jealous husband, even when his wife is A good person, modest, chast person. The Rambam says very clearly that this kinoi jealousy should be done in, in a calm manner with a pure spirit in order to assist, guide, and protect his wife. In fact, the Rambam goes so far to say that a person who is not careful to guide his wife and children on appropriate behavior, he is the sinner. So this is not an emergency situation. It's not a breakdown of a relationship. It is the normal way that a family should operate, that the husband looks out for the well-being of the wife and kids, spiritual well-being. This particular approach to kinoi has nothing to do with suspicion or mistrust. It is the responsibility of the man of the house to look after the spiritual and moral well-being of his family. And if sometimes he has to remind people, no, don't behave in a particular way, that's part of his responsibility. And that's why we have an expression that the Rambam himself uses, that it is a mitzvah for wise people to be zealous about their wives. It's a general statement. It applies to every single woman. There's no aspersions about who she is. And it's supposed to happen all of the time. And he says clearly, He makes very clear uh, accommodation for the fact that you don't mis- mistreat your wife because of this. Don't get over angry. Don't get over jealous. Don't take it lightly. Don't scare her. You know, don't be uh, overwhelming or, or um, controlling. Don't run straight away to witnesses. But the point is that the Rambam says the two scenarios. There is a scenario which is all about there's trouble in the house. We better tackle it. And there's a scenario which says, I'm a guy who is responsible to make sure that my family is okay. 
and make sure that my wife doesn't go where she shouldn't go. Based on that, we can now distinguish between what the anonymous source said in the Mishnah and what Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Shmuel debate about in the Gemara, uh, in the Brisa. When the Mishnah said, it's not ideal to go chasing your wife. Should the situation arise and you have to deal with it, this is how you deal with it. That's talking about the situation where there is mistrust, where there's a breakdown in relationship. And in that case, in that scenario, and it is going to be surprising, and we will analyze it, but the Rambam is going to take a view that if a woman is not, or suspected at least, of being unfaithful, that's when the husband dare not accuse her. I know that sounds counterintuitive. We'll explain it. But when Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Shmuel debate whether you are required or entitled to be zealous about your wife, that's talking about a good woman in a normal, healthy circumstance. Do you have to, like the Rambam says, be on top of things and make sure that there's chastity in the home? Or is it your choice? Rabbi Shmuel takes the view that while the fact that the Torah permits a husband to actually be on top of his wife in this way is a surprise. Seeing as we know that the Torah says you shouldn't hate another Jew, certainly not your own wife. In this particular case, the Torah says, you know what, you can actually be a little bit uh, harsh, not harsh in, a, in, an, in an abrupt or abrasive way, but in a sense of, you know, these are the rules and this is what we have to do. Even though the Torah normally says don't create hatred and this might cause some tension in the family, it's okay because it's for good reason and it's within reason. Whereas Rabbi Kiva says, no, 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 you don't have a choice in the matter. You have a responsibility as the husband to ensure that your family behaves the way that they should, including your wife. And on that, the Rambam agrees. So when it comes to the person who suspects infidelity, the Rambam there says, don't. You should not get involved. Don't go down that road. And when it comes to the idea of general guidance in the family, there he goes, like Rabbi Akiva, and he says, required. You can actually see this in the wording of the Psukim, by the way. You can actually see that the Pasuk distinguishes between two possibilities of how Kinoi happens. We, we gloss over it when we read it normally, but now we have insight. These two approaches to kinoi jealousy are alluded to in the pasuk. Why? Because it says, Scenario one is the person who has this wave of jealousy that spills over him, and it turns out that it was well-founded. Or he had a scenario where he got all worked up and jealous, and it turns out afterwards that it was unfounded. The fact that the Torah makes a wordy version of this when it could have just said, but it doesn't. It says, again, it says the whole thing again. Why? 
because because the Torah is alluding to the fact that there might be two scenarios, two different kinds of women. One kind of a woman, it's likely that we're going to find something where they smoke this fire. It's likely that, unfortunately, she's going to land up being uh, unfaithful. And then you get, and then you get the kind of story where the person is jealous towards a woman who, we don't suspect that there's anything wrong. We have no reason to suspect. So those would be the two scenarios. And the Rambam would say, in the scenario where you suspect infidelity, don't go and accuse her. And in the case where you suspect that everything's good at home, then dafka be the moral compass. Now, that sounded counterintuitive, so we have to understand why would the Rambam suggest that in a, in a scenario, in a case, where we think that the woman is being unfaithful, that that's dafka where we disempower the man. Why? Why would the Rambam say that a guy who suspects his wife should dafka not accuse her? The Lechaira Adarab, logic says the opposite should happen. Is that not the most logical time for a person, Dafka, to be jealous of his wife? Yes, it is going to create tension in the family, of course. Surely it's logical. You warn your wife. Now you protect her from, from getting into trouble in the future. Or worse, if there really is a breakdown in the marriage, you're able to expose it. So it doesn't seem, it seems to fly in the face of the whole concept of a soita. Here's the concept, don't do it. <laughs> it seems weird. fascinating. So we have to therefore conclude that the Rambam does not agree with Rashi. Rashi says that the reason that Oselekanos is that you don't cause more tension in an already uh, broken family. The Rambam says, don't accuse or warn her, because we're actually afraid that because of the nature of the scenario, the water's not going to work. Why not? Dinu. The Gemara says very clearly, The Gemara says very clearly that if the man is innocent of his own uh, immorality, then the water will test his wife. But if he himself is guilty of some kind of misbehavior, then the water is going to be ineffectual for his wife because he doesn't deserve it. According, there's different opinions of what exactly it means that he was uh, inappropriate or, or that he was immoral in some way. The Rambam goes with a view. If this man ever in his life ever had an inappropriate relationship, including with a non-married, a single woman, then that would cancel the possibility of the water testing his wife. Now, the Gemara actually tells us here in Soita that any person who is immoral, if he's promiscuous, the natural result is she'll be promiscuous. So the Gemara says there's a folk expression. He's in the pumpkin patch and she's in the zucchini patch. As Rashi says, it's like two different kinds of squash. And one is large and one is small. Meaning that whatever he's tinkering with, she's tinkering with. 
נמצא שכאשר הנהגה סוישה אינה כדבוי, יש נחשש גודל שגם הנהגה סבל אויסה שלא כדבוי וממילא אינה מים בויתקין. Therefore, what the Gemara is telling us is, if there is reason to believe that the wife is unfaithful, there's automatically reason to believe that the husband is also not so kosher, for which reason the water is not going to work. That would explain why the author of the Mishnah said, If there's something inappropriate going on, you're not allowed to pursue it through the Soita process because the water won't work. And what's going to happen is you'll have erased Hashem's name for no good reason. And therefore, in the Rambam's own words, this person would have created a terrible sin. Number one, erasing Hashem's name for no good reason. Number two, creating a sense in the community that the whole Sota process is a farce. Because look, he has a person who had an, inf- uh, an unfaithful wife and it, and it did nothing for her. Therefore, in the Rambam's view, if you know that there is something inappropriate, you have to divorce. Now that we understand this, that there are two possibilities of how Sota operates, and that we understand that in the possibility where there's real issues, you actually don't go down the full Sota process. Hamekane, bediyevet, it's not what should happen. Osulekane, you shouldn't do it. Now we get why the Rambam believes that Sota must follow Gitin. Because Soita begins by telling us the story of a woman who really didn't behave appropriately. She actually committed adultery. Now, if you're talking about somebody who really did sin, then when it says in the beginning of the Gemara, anybody who sees a Saita who is disgraced should become a Nazir, Disgrace does not mean, like Rashi says, embarrassed publicly, which may apply to a Soto's innocent as well. Disgraced means that her bad behavior gets exposed. We see the effects of the Soto water on her. So because nowadays we don't have Soto water, and so therefore the concept of a person who really knows what's going on and he just wants to be able to clarify it in some way, his only recourse in today's world is divorce. That's why the Rambam takes the view that you go from speaking about divorce straight into speaking about Sota because it's the same theme. How a person deals with a broken marriage. If it's broken because of infidelity or even the, the grave suspicion of infidelity, the root is still divorce. Actually, the fact that the Masechta should start off first speaking about the guilty woman matches perfectly with the order in which it's presented in the Torah. Because the Torah also starts first with the scenario of the guilty woman who actually had an adulterous affair. 
And only after that, the Torah addresses the possibility that there's somebody where we don't know what happened and we're in doubt and we have to clarify the doubt by saying, Then it produces the possibility, maybe she was impure, maybe she wasn't defiled, we don't know. The fact that the Torah first speaks about the guilty scenario explains why the Mishnah would also first speak about the guilty scenario. And the guilty scenario in the Rambam's view leads directly to divorce, so therefore Sota has to follow Gittin. And even when it got to the part, by the way, where the Torah was speaking about the unclear scenario, it still proposed the guilty option first. As we already pointed out, that the fact that it says is describing the woman who in fact is going to emerge guilty. This is all in the Rambam's approach. Whereas Rashi has a completely different approach that applies to all of these things. According to Rashi, he has no reason to believe that the Mishnah is specifically talking about a scenario where she will be proven guilty. According to Rashi, it's talking about a scenario where we don't know. Where there may not be any real evidence. Therefore, in Rashi's view, Therefore, Rashi says, logically, Soita follows Nazir. Why? Because the theme is, see the Soita, you need to respond in kind. It has nothing to do with Gitin. And that would also explain why Rashi says that the, the defilement of the Soita is her public shame, as opposed to the Rambam, who would say that her defilement is the exposure of her sin. And thirdly, and because Rashi goes with a view that we don't know we're speaking about a guilty party over here, therefore the logic saying don't accuse her is because you don't want to break a marriage. If you don't have to break the marriage, don't create more friction than there may already be. Now that we have seen that the Rambam is of the view that the Tractate of Soita opens up first with a guilty scenario. We can now tie the beginning of the Masechta to the end of the Masechta, where one of the things we learned is, don't mention that there are no longer people who fear sin because there's me. So there's a correlation between fearing sin on the one hand and sinning on the other hand. The Gemara concludes by saying, how do we conclude this topic? Meaning, how do we put an end to this issue of the Saita? How do you put a seum to make sure no woman is ever going to be unfaithful? How do you make sure that no person is going to sin? Remember, of course, woman sinning in a marriage scenario is also metaphoric for us with regards to Hashem. So there's like a very broad uh, principle over here. So what's the solution? What's the antidote? It's by saying that your aschet still lives on today. The Tana wants to say there's no more people who fear sin. No, it still lives on and can even live on in your life. By the time you reach the end of the Gemara Soita, what's supposed to happen is you're supposed to read that line as if you're talking about yourself. You're supposed to read that line as if to say, I am the representative of the fact that there is, um, there is still fear of sin, because I still fear sin. 
The truth is we can even link this based on Rashi's approach, where Rashi said that the woman referred to in the first mission, we don't know, she may or may not be guilty, we don't know. In fact, of course, we know that the procedure of the Sota does not automatically tell you that the woman is guilty. So how would we link Rashi's approach to the end of the Gemara? We know very well that in Hasidus we are quite specific about this term. It is fear of sin. We understand that um, the, the, the concept of fear of sin is, is specifically that, fear of the sin, not fear of the consequences that may arise because you've sinned. So, So the notion over here is that there's a fear of doing something which is against what Hashem wants, and that is reflected in the, co- in the concept of a soita who's proven to actually be pure. What does that mean? Every Avera has consequences, which means that in every Avera, you always have to weigh up. Is it worth it? Because I have to consider the consequences. Either I could be afraid of the consequences, or I could learn to be afraid of the Avera itself, that it's toxic, you don't touch it, you don't think about what, what the fallout might be. There's an exception. Now, here's an exception. Here's a woman who was accused of an Avera and proven to be innocent. She doesn't face consequences. Actually, it's more than that. Not only does she not face consequences. If this woman is proven to be innocent, she is actually going to emerge with tremendous brocha. Her infertility that she may have had could be cured. Or if she had difficulty with childbirth, it will ease up. Nevertheless, she still has to go through some level of atonement by bringing the mincha offering. Why? Because to get to the soita place, she had to have ignored her husband saying, don't go spend secluded time with so-and-so. And she did. So she still did something which was inappropriate, even though it wasn't an outright sin. So if she was willing to do something which is not sanctioned by the Torah, even though her motivation was because she wants to get the brochas that follow after us, but it doesn't matter, it tells me you don't fear sin enough. Here's something the Torah says you're not supposed to do and you did it, you obviously don't fear sin enough. That's why the conclusion of the whole tractate of Soita is you have to reach a point of Yerashet where the notion of an Avera is scary to the point that I would never do it, even if it's a minor Avera. And that's the take-home lesson for us because marriage is a symbol of our relationship with Hashem. Soita is a symbol not necessarily of a great rebel, but it's even the symbol of a person who says, I'm willing to do things that are gray area because I don't have enough sensitivity about what it actually means. This is the lesson. We should be so sensitized that a minor breakaway from what Hashem wants is serious business for us.